Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Julia Galef. Julia is the author of Scout Mindset. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so great to be on finally. So Julia, by, by way of introduction, what, what is the, the book about and, and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, so it's called The Scout Mindset. Uh, and that is my term for the motivation to see things as they are and not as you wish they were. So basically trying to be intellectually honest and objective and just curious about what's actually true. And it's part of the kind of central metaphor of the book, which is that we humans are very often by default in what I call soldier mindset, where we're motivated to defend our beliefs against any evidence or arguments that might threaten them. And so scout mindset is an alternative to that. The book is about why is soldier mindset so often our default, how to shift towards scout mindset, and why that's something you should want to do. So I, I want to get into the, the soldier mindset, but, but before doing so, why don't we, just by way of an introduction for people who are sort of new to your work, if you were to ask to sort of tie the, the threads together in terms of the, the, the work that you've done, you know, leading up to this book, in terms of like the common questions that you've been asking or the threads that you've, you've been pulling, how would you sort of uh, articulate it? Yeah, I mean, I've been interested for 10, 15 years now in improving human reasoning and decision making, um, often called rationality, although uh, I often don't use the word rationality because it means lots of different things to different people. And often what it means to people is that I think I'm perfectly rational and I think they're irrational, which is not what I mean by it. (laughs) I'm just interested in, you know, we're all irrational in various ways. And how do we, you know, improve our reasoning and decision making? So that's been the thrust of my career for the last 10, 15 years. I've done various things to try to, you know, train reasoning and decision making. Like I co-founded this educational nonprofit in 2012 called the Center for Applied Rationality and ran workshops, uh, basically taking, taking concepts from cognitive science and some like basic economic theory and even philosophy uh, and training people to apply those concepts to improve the decisions that they were making in their lives and their businesses, their relationships, et cetera. And so my kind of like converging on the idea of scout mindset as what seemed most important to me, it was born out of the realization that I I had kind of been wrong about how to improve reasoning and decision making. I guess my original picture of what would happen was that there's all this knowledge in the world. There's all this knowledge from, you know, cognitive science and philosophy, et cetera. And we'll give people the knowledge and then they'll use the knowledge to, you know, make better decisions. And, you know, that I would too. I'd use this knowledge to make better decisions. I, I came to realize that the knowledge is not really the bottleneck. The bottleneck is more uh, motivational. You know, you, you can like know, you, you can have memorized all of the cognitive biases in the world. Um, but if you're not motivated to notice them in yourself, then you know, that's not going to do you that much good. Uh, as you probably are aware, you're, you've probably seen people online who, you know, are experts at pointing out biases and fallacies in other people's thinking, but never actually turn that lens on yeah. themselves. And so uh, I just got more interested in what seemed to me to be like an underappreciated bottleneck in thinking better, which was just, you know, having the motivation to actually 
you know, figure stuff out for real and actually notice what you're wrong about rather than just like looking for ways to confirm what you already believe or what you want to be true. So, so the scout mindset is not just an intellectual approach. It's sort of like a way of being or something. It's a, yeah, it's a mix. It's a mix of things. Um, I mean, partly it's about kind of reframing situations to change your emotions. So I talk in the book about how do you make yourself more open to considering truths or possible truths that might be, you know, unpleasant or stressful or inconvenient? Um, How do you make yourself like emotionally receptive? So you're thinking clearly about them. And then it's also uh, social, you know, humans are social creatures and a lot of uh, arguably the main way that we learn new habits and new ways of thinking is just from the people around us. And so I also talk in the book about kind of creating a community around yourself, like cultivating a community that values scout mindset more than soldier mindset, ideally, um, so that you have more of like a more of a tailwind instead of a headwind when it comes to developing these habits yourself. Yeah, let's get into that. But, but first, maybe you could share more on why is the soldier mindset uh, uh, our default? Why don't you un- unpack that uh, a bit more? Yeah, so I really wanted to take soldier mindset seriously um, in the book, by which I mean, you know, it's very easy to write a book uh, or, you know, an article or whatever saying, you know, uh, here are all the the terrible biases and fallacies in our thinking and, you know, we should think this other way instead. But I think anytime there's a a default, a way that things are already, you should take that seriously and try to understand why are they, why are things this way? This principle is sometimes called Chesterton's fence uh, after the essayist G.K. Uh, Chesterton, um, who told this parable about uh, coming across a fence in a field and thinking to yourself, why is this fence here? I don't see any reason for it. Let's knock it down. Um, and his point was, you know, if you don't understand why the fence is there, you shouldn't knock it down. Like, go off, figure out why the fence is there. And then once you understand it, maybe you can knock it down. And so I was trying to take that approach to soldier mindset um, and basically understand what what purpose is it serving for us, or at least what purpose is it meant to serve. And so that is a complicated question, but I break it down into uh, a handful of purposes. And they include things like, well, feeling good, you know, bolstering our egos um, by kind of massaging the truth in a way that makes us feel good about ourselves, motivating ourselves. So, you know, convincing ourselves that things are going to work out great if we just work hard or convincing ourselves that like we're you know more talented or more skilled than other people and also looking good to other people. So Robin Hansen uh, and other economists have talked about this before. Evolutionary psychologists talk about this. They sometimes call it signaling or impression management. Basically, a lot of the beliefs that we choose, we unconsciously choose them to seem smart to other people or to seem, you know, uh, edgy. Or there's lots of ways you might want to seem, um, but we kind of instinctively choose beliefs to some extent to, you know, create an image for ourselves. Um, And then we also, you know, uh, sometimes try to convince ourselves of things to make it easier for us to convince other people of those things. Because, or at least the logic is that the more strongly and passionately we believe something, the more convincing we can be to others. So that's just some of the ways in which we try to use soldier mindset. And and so I want to take those things seriously and acknowledge that, you know, yes, we're not doing this just because we're stupid. There's a reason we use soldier mindset. But soldier mindset also had the, has these downsides. And so the book is about like, can we can we get those things that we're trying to get with soldier mindset instead with scout mindset so that we don't have to distort our judgment in order to be, you know, 
happy and satisfied with ourselves and motivated and so on. And, and so what would an example of that look like? Yeah. So one of the common objections that I ran into about the idea of Scout Mindset was from people in Silicon Valley, because I was living in the Bay Area when I wrote the book. And uh, the, the common objection is, basically, you need soldier mindset if you're going to be doing something uh, like really hard, like starting a company. Um, because, you know, if you believe 110% that you're going to succeed, that may not be rationally justified, but that's what's going to get you to go out there and like try really hard and, and to persevere when things get tough. And so actually, entrepreneurs should be in soldier mindset. And I understand why this is compelling, but there are actually a bunch of examples of very successful entrepreneurs who uh, had a very clear-eyed and realistic picture of the odds they were facing, and they were still really motivated and went out and successfully built large businesses. Like, for example, Elon Musk, when he was starting Tesla and when he was starting SpaceX, he estimated that his odds of success for each company was about 10%. Similarly, Jeff Bezos, when he was starting Amazon, he asked himself, what, do you, what is the likelihood that Amazon is going to succeed? Um, and he put his odds at about 30%. So, so the explanation for how someone can expect their most likely outcome is failure and yet still be really motivated to go out there and try really hard and, and eventually succeed is that both Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos approached the idea of starting a business in terms of expected value. So basically, if the probability of success times the value of success plus the probability of failure times the value of failure is really positive, then a business is a good bet to take even if the likeliest outcome is failure. And so if you go back and look at the thinking of both Musk and Bezos when they were starting their companies, they, I don't think they explicitly... Actually, no, I think Musk does use the term expected value. <laughs> but but both of them, it's sort of clear from the way they're thinking that they're like, well, you know, the upside is huge and the downside is bearable. And if I make a number of these bets in my life, then, you know, I'm actually... the 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 probability of success overall is actually not bad. So I can feel good about taking this bet, even if the likeliest outcome is failure. Um, and so basically my argument is if you are kind of practiced in thinking in terms of expected value, you don't need to convince yourself that you have a hundred percent chance of success in order to feel motivated. And, and so is there still a, a role for, for soldier mindset? So I don't want to claim that soldier mindset is never a better strategy just because that would be a very strong claim, and I don't think I can justify that. I've, heard, I've seen other advocates of things like soldier mindset, like intellectual honesty and self-honesty. I've seen people make that claim that like you should always, it's always better to know the truth. And I kind of share that intuition, but I don't, I don't, I've never seen any of them defend that in a way that seems sufficient to me. So I don't make that claim in the book. Instead, my claim is that in at least most situations, when it looks like you need soldier mindset to get something you want, like motivation or influence or happiness, most of the time, there is another way that doesn't require soldier mindset. So I give a lot of examples of that in the book. And I, I suspect that that's the case, you know, at least almost all the time, if not all the time, but I can't actually defend that uh, conclusively. So I don't try to. It's interesting because there's a phenomena where people say something like, you know, after being successful, they'll say like, if I really knew the odds at the time, 
I would have never pursued it because it was just, you know, so hard to do and, and, and so unlikely that they would have achieved what they achieved in, in their eyes. Right. And of course there's the survivorship bias of like, yeah, maybe they just got lucky. And most people who, sure. who tried that to the same degree, just, you know, didn't end up being successful. And, and yet that can be true. And also they might not have tried it if, if they were like thinking probably from in terms of expected value. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, that's just not a common probabilistic thinkers. And so (laughs) I think most people like to them, it really does seem like the only way to be motivated is to, you know, think determined is to basically believe that you will succeed. um, Because if you have any doubt, then that doubt will sort of cripple you. You know, that that's kind of a corollary of this common wisdom about motivation that if you have any doubt at all, then that will Uh, Like if you admit the possibility of failure that will cripple you or paralyze you, this is like another version of this uh, common wisdom I've heard. But, but again, this doesn't quite, it doesn't really seem to bear out. Like if you look at the way people talk, like people have done really hard, risky things like starting a company, um, the way a lot of them talk about how they think about failure is that accepting the possibility of failure is what is freeing to them. Yeah. Like, thinking about the possibility that they might fail and knowing that'll be okay. I'll be okay. The worry is that that's going to be like a safety net. Like you'll, you'll never, you'll always like fall back if you think you have the safety net, but in practice, that doesn't actually seem to be the way it works, at least for many people. Um, instead it's like, you know, now I feel liberated to actually take the risks because I, I know I'll be okay if I fail. Right. But is that as, so I guess my hypothesis would be that I've just thought of on the spot. Um, if you'll yeah, sure. the threads would be that, that if everyone thought from expected value perspective, a lot of people would tend more to take more of like a portfolio of activities or, and I, I get the, what you just yeah. said, people would be more likely to take big risks because they, they, you know, are, are sort of in the way that you described Elon, Elon was, but um, at the same time, that's, that feels different than someone for whom their motivation is that, I don't know, to pick a random example that like, God has, you know, they're like told them that they, they need, need to do this one thing and one thing only, and there's no such thing as failure. And they just need to like go all in on it. I mean, what I wonder is if the scout mindset, if applied more broadly would like, it would lead to more success for more people. Um, but it might cap some upside just because it's a different motivation than like a singular, you know, sort of existential focus on, on, on one thing. How do you react to that? Yeah. It's complicated. It's really hard to know for sure which way it would go. Uh, and there's there's factors on both sides of the equation. Like there's, you know, there's the fact that some people who would have had the like super singular focus might, you know, might waver and therefore not try as hard. There's also the potential that, you know, some people, if they view the odds realistically, might decide to opt for like a safer bet instead of the the risky high payoff one that might help the world. Those are those are possible. Um, there's also on the other side of the equation, the fact that, you know, I don't know if I made this really explicit, but like the reason scout mindset is beneficial is because it helps your judgment, like to be able to see yourself as clearly as possible, your strengths and weaknesses and, uh, and your situation to be able to see the world, the market as clearly as possible to see human nature as clearly as possible. That's what lets you make all of these tough judgment calls as well as you can. Um, and so, you know, on the other side of the equation is that, these people with the singular focus and the unrealistic uh, expectations might just be making worse decisions and like undermining their own success because they don't, they aren't, you know, trying to see things realistically. So I don't know which way it would go. 
if everyone decided to be in scout mindset tomorrow instead of soldier mindset. The, the claim that I'm comfortable making is that it is perfectly possible, if you want to try to be in scout mindset, which I think is a good idea in general, it's perfectly possible to be a successful entrepreneur or activist or do all of these you know, hard and risky things that require passion while still being in scout mindset. So that, that's a different claim from claiming that everyone in the world would be better off if they yeah. switched over to scout mindset. But I think that's, it's still a significant claim relative to what most people realize is true. Right. To pick one sort of, and this might just be a totally different topic, but um, Moneyball. Um, yeah. There's this anecdote where the, the scouts uh, or the sort of analysts, the coaches are getting really sophisticated on this sort of like, um, you know, uh, statistical orientation to discovering talent. Um, and there's this anecdote where a player, they're wondering if like one of their players should get more sophisticated on some element of it. And one of them says like, no, that'll just like confuse him or it, it, like <laughs> to, to like take on, to encourage right. the player to think in a more abstract way will like take him out of his zone or something <laughs> like, and, and baseball is different than like being a CEO of a company and maybe being a CEO of a company is more like abstract, but baseball is, is like pre-intellectual or something. It's just like, you have to be so present and in, like, you know, you know what I mean? Do you get what I'm trying to yeah, get Yeah, no, I do. I do get what you're trying to get at. I was just smiling to myself because I do have an example in the book of a, a baseball player exhibiting a scout <laughs> mindset. Um, it, his name is Trevor Bauer. Yeah. Um, and I, I it, uh, disclaimer, I don't really follow sports at all. So <laughs> I, I don't want to try to um, uh, talk about the game too much for fear of embarrassing myself. But I happened to see a headline about Bauer and it piqued my interest because he was pitching really well, let's say that. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and the interviewer asked him, like, what to what do you attribute your amazing success this season at pitching? And his reply was, random variation. <laughs> um, he said this, you know, this is like an, this is a streak that can't continue. So it's going to fail sooner or later, uh, which just made me grin. Like how often do you hear someone attribute their success to random variation? <laughs> People always have some kind of causal story to tell about something they, you know, started doing that, uh, you know, yeah, well, I believed in myself or, or I was wearing my lucky socks or whatever. And then the next season he was, his uh, pitching record was uh, unusually bad. And and the interviewers asked him about that. And he was like, well, you know, whatever the statistic is that, whose name I'm forgetting um, is a statistic that the variation is really huge um, and it doesn't correlate very much with kind of underlying skill at pitching. And so it's something where there's going to be a lot of regression to the mean. And so, again, when he was pitching, his uh, statistic was worse than normal. He's like, yeah, I wouldn't worry about this. It's going to go back to normal. And it did. So the, the reason that I talk about Bauer in the book is because I think it's a, he's a great example of how like thinking probabilistically can it can be it can have a really kind of calming psychological effect because like without it like every time luck goes against you you're just you know devastated and when luck goes in your favor you're ecstatic but uh, due to the foibles of human nature, we tend to like feel worse about the losses than we feel good about the gains. And so it's not only very tumultuous, but also like net bad relative to the yeah. underlying truth. Um, and so, you know, the equanimity that Bauer got from just understanding the underlying like random chance inherent in what he was doing was, I think, really valuable. And to your point, actually, a few minutes ago about, you know, taking a portfolio approach I think an underappreciated 
aspect of probabilistic thinking is that, you know, for any one bet you take, your chance of it paying off may be low, but over your life, you take lots of bets. Like you can start multiple companies um, and you can like take risks in your relationships. You can like try risky things. You can go out on a limb and like have risky conversations with people or uh, make risky investments um, like in the traditional sense of the word. And so for any one bet that you're making, you know, you can accept like this one may well not pay off. But if you are kind of zooming out and looking at the overall picture, like averaging out over the random chance, you can feel pretty good about that and with a lot more confidence than you can have about any one bet. Yeah, I, I think we are certainly in broad agreement that most people do not or many people do not uh, apply the scout mindset and that things could be uh, much better for them if they did. What I'm curious to, to get an understanding, and I'll give this one example. So there's this book, uh, Joseph Henrik's new book uh, on weird culture, Western, educated, yeah. rich countries. I think he has one anecdote where he, he describes how um, as sort of, you know, uh, people in the West got better at, you know, reading comprehension and synthesizing, you know, information and, and sort of moved from an oral culture to a text culture that they yeah. got worse at like recognizing faces or, or, or that there were, that there are some trade-offs, you know, some muscles hmm. strengthened and some muscles, you know, uh, were atrophied, you know, Socrates of course, uh, was, uh, you know, didn't like writing because he was worried that our memory would, would get worse and, maybe there was some, some connection. And so I, I guess what, what I'm curious about, about is like, do you, do you think there's any, tra- you, what I'm guessing that you would reject is that there's some trade-off between thinking, you know, more abstractly from a, a probabilistically or from expected value on certain things um, and becoming more sophisticated in this sort of like mode of thought and any sort of like, you know, this, what people call like being one with the activity or, or like just such deep engagement or deep present, because in, in the first, in the mode of thought, you're inherently sort of like you're stepping out of the frame a little bit. And and some people and most people don't have any ability to even step out of the frame. And the, there's so much to be gained from stepping out of the frame. The question I'm just curious if you'd concede is if there's anything lost. <laughs> uh, meaning like, like the awareness in your mind that this, this is just one bet that I'm going to be making in my life over many bets. And, you know, what really matters is my overall portfolio uh, that that you're suggesting maybe that kind of thinking like goes again or like prevents you from being just fully committed to the one no, 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 that's, that's that what it? i asked that's what i asked before what i'm asking now is more like uh, if we go back to the baseball player and like you know you gave one example where the person referenced random variation it, yeah. it, you know, the one coach and you know maybe in in this anecdote was saying hey let's not teach this person about these concepts because it might encourage them to like think too much, you know, and, and what coaches often uh-huh. are like, get your head in the game. Don't even, don't think of the, like one risk athletes have is that they, you know, are like psych themselves out. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so they have to be like, so present. And one way for people to be so present is to like, not zoom out or, or not even have the like skills to. Yeah. 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 This is, it's kind of a subtle question. So, you know, what I'm, what I've been describing about, motivation that's derived from like a realistic understanding of probability and expected value even even the people who point to that who have like cited that as their source of motivation and their you know the the drive behind their decision to quit their job and start a company like Musk and Bezos I don't think even those people are in that 
mind space or headspace 24-7. Like on a day-to-day basis, you're not really thinking about that. You're thinking about the launch that's coming up next week, or you're thinking about like the fires you have to put out <laughs> today at, at work, or you're thinking about you know the the problem that you that you are so close to solving or something like that um and so that's that's or or you're you know like comparing your progress to where you were a month ago and that's really motivating so there's all these other kind of day-to-day sources of motivation that that don't really involve the probabilistic thinking the probabilistic thinking is more relevant in those moments when you're kind of a like deciding to take the plunge or b kind of stepping back and like you know, you know those moments where you like step back and reevaluate your life choices, <laughs> uh, and so it's in those moments that I think it's really valuable to be able to say like, you know, even if this bet doesn't pay off, I can I will still feel good about having taken it. That's a, v- a very valuable thing to be able to say to yourself in those moments. That makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm curious how, how you think about uh, we were talking about this earlier. They're, so they're totally sold on, on the scout mindset. How can they adopt it more in in their in their personal life? What sort of you know things can can they do to uh, or exercise can they do to to adopt it more? Yeah, uh, great question. There's a, a lot of different things I talk about in the book. I'll just to name a couple examples. I have a whole section on kind of self awareness um, and getting better at noticing when you're you might be rationalizing or when you might be in soldier mindset and. So one of the thought experiments that might already be familiar to some of your listeners is just, um, I call it the outsider test. And it just involves kind of taking yourself outside of the situation you're thinking about. So, you know, if it's you who who has to decide whether or not to fire an employee, um, which was one of the most commonly cited situations in which like managers or, or CEOs told me they realized later they had been in soldier mindset was like really trying to find some reason why they didn't have to fire this person because they really didn't want to. So suppose you're in a situation like that. A simple thought experiment is just to imagine that it's someone else's situation. It's like someone else in the exact same situation with that same employee who's you know got the same track record and they're trying to decide whether to fire the person. Uh, and then just notice like what would your reaction be to observing them in that situation, uh, like what would your advice be? And you know, very often it's quite striking to notice how differently you're, you would judge uh, a situation when all you change is just whether it's you or not who's the main yeah. character. So that's like one of a number of different thought experiments I, that I and other people have found useful um, on a regular basis. And then another kind of like regularly useful habit that you could consider adopting is betting or at least like thinking about how you would bet. So uh, I have a chapter where I talk about how like very often what we're doing when we like form a judgment or, or tell ourselves something is it's kind of akin to a press secretary. So at a company, um, you can think of, you know, there's a press secretary, then there's like the board. And the press secretary's role is just to tell the public or the press things that, you know, make the company seem like look good and that are he's not like really concerned about whether they're true he's just concerned with like are these plausible enough that i can get away with saying them right uh and so we're often very much in that mode and whereas the board their job is to actually just make make decisions like make bets where you know there are real stakes and if they if they make the wrong decision the company will suffer and if they make the right decision the company will thrive so just thinking about how you would bet on a belief even if you can't actually bet on it, can shift you away from the press secretary mode into the, you know, board decision-making mode. For example, uh, say you have the belief like 
our servers are secure, let's say. So that might really feel true to you. Um, but then if you ask yourself, like, how would I, like, would I be willing to bet on that belief? And sometimes you have to get creative about thinking about, like, what would a bet entail? Um, but you could imagine that bet is like, okay, we'll hire a, a hacker. And if they can, you know, break into our servers in the next five hours, then I lose the bet and I have to pay $1,000. Um, and so just making that concrete and noticing, like, do I feel excited to take this bet because I'm confident I'll win? Or do I feel a little hesitant because now I'm not so sure anymore if our servers are as secure as I thought? Just that kind of frame shift can make you realize that like, actually, the thing I was telling myself, I'm not sure I believe it anymore. Um, so I often do this kind of like, make the claim concrete to think about whether I would bet something on it. And then I guess the last thing I'll say, which is probably the most important is just cultivating the habit of noticing when you're in soldier mindset, uh, which might sound backwards. But, you know, one of the core themes of the book is that soldier mindset is is really innate and really universal. And so if you never notice yourself in soldier mindset, then, you know, what's more likely that you're like the one exception to humanity <laughs> or that you just aren't all that self-aware? So, you know, I think noticing yourself in soldier mindset and starting to notice the, like what it feels like when you're rationalizing or the kinds of situations where you tend to be defensive, that kind of self-awareness is a really crucial step towards shifting into scout mindset. And so when you notice that, you should be, you know, happy that you noticed uh, and, and not... Uh, disappointed. I can't wait until it's just uh, frictionless to be able to bet on stuff and to be right? able to, yeah, track track yeah. those, encourage other people to bet. Um, we're, we're heading slowly in that direction. Yeah. It's really interesting. You haven't seen BitClout, have you? No, I haven't. It's a, it's a people stock market. It's basically, imagine Twitter, but like your followers own your coin <laughs> or, uh, and, and as they buy more, your stock goes up as they sell, your stock goes down. Oh God. Uh, yeah. So I'm stressed know. out just thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you, you don't have to play, but there, there are dystopian, uh, you know, ways you could, it could go, but it could also go like, Hey, as people, you know, gain more trust in, in like, it could be a, a correcting mechanism as well. Nice. Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting to see what, what will happen there. So, so we've talked about it from an individual level. How about on a organization level? Like, if you were, you know, the CEO of a company and you're trying to think about how can I adopt Scout mindset in my culture and what sort of, you know, different whether it's principles or or rituals I could adopt to make my organization more more Scout oriented. What uh, Scout mindset oriented? What what might you recommend? Yeah, I think this, um, you know, group level or community level perspective is really important because, you know, as I say, we humans are not these single itemized creatures uh, reasoning in isolation, like our, our our thinking habits and, and styles are just are largely the function of the people we surround ourselves with. So uh, I think the kinds of behaviors you reward and punish are the kinds of behaviors that will, you know, flourish or die out. And so uh, there, there's a lot of different ways you can, or like different aspects of scout mindset that you can encourage in your group by rewarding them. So for example, like at some organizations I've worked with, when someone like makes an explicit prediction, people will express appreciation for that. Explicit in the sense of like, we will find out if they're right or wrong. <laughs> they like stuck their neck out, you know? Um, and so even if they're wrong, um, you want like the the overall 
sentiment towards them to be appreciation that they actually made an explicit prediction. Thank you. Similarly, like showing appreciation to someone, like explicitly calling someone out positively for having, you know, like one one woman at an organization I, I know of, she had been lobbying for a particular change um, and she'd kind of gotten some people behind her. And then she kind of reran the numbers and like got some more information and ended up deciding, actually, I think this wouldn't be a good investment for us. And it was hard for her to admit that because she had been kind of the champion of this idea. Uh, but, you know, she was like, I, I can't keep standing behind, behind this idea if I no longer think it's good. And so she told people she changed her mind and they were really appreciative because many people in that situation would just have barreled ahead with it because they didn't want to, you know, like admit they had been wrong. Uh, so anyway, just recognizing the the behaviors that contribute to a culture of scout mindset and rewarding those, um, I think is at, at the bottom level, that's, that's really all, that's all there is to it. It's interesting because one thing I'm just sort of thinking, uh, thinking about out loud is there's this, if I would sort of segment out, you know, how strong someone comes across in a conversation. Uh, and if someone was mm-hmm. trying to, you know, be least, or, you know, result in them, the other partner being le- least defensive, I think yeah. there's like a few levers. One is the tone of, and uh, two is like the word choice that, uh, you know, because some uh, things are just more aggressive than some like words are more aggressive than accusatory others. Accusatory words or something yeah. as opposed yeah. to, you know, describing your own reactions. Yes. Or even like words that mean the same, the same thing, but w- some imply guilt and some don't, I don't have an example. Of top yeah. Of my head. Yeah. Um, and then third is like the actual substance of, of what is being communicated. And I think uh, another person that comes to mind I, who does this really well, I think Patrick Carlson and, and, and you both by tone and sort of like word choice come across not as har- harmless, but like as not, you know, accusatory or attacking. I, I, oh, good. You could have a conversation with like Coleman Hughes, for example, on a, you know, fairly sensitive topic but do so, or, or, or incendiary topic for some people, yeah, yeah, but sort yeah. of like you, you do a good job of not setting off tripwires, even though the substance of it itself could be um, like not what people want to hear or something. <laughs> and That's, so yeah. it just, if you are trying, if one is trying to get across, you know, something that is substantively, you know, different, like controversial, but you're trying to express your, your opinion. If one is able to also, to make the tone and and the word choice not a additional sort of like because bar- then people will focus on the tone or focus on the content or or, or the word choice or it'll just ex- you know elevate that that conflict. I'm curious. That's, if, that's yeah. That's such a good observation, and also thank you. <laughs> it's an, an it's a praise that I like especially appreciate because I I like you know how nice it is to be praised for something you've been like explicitly trying to do. <laughs> and also it's very nice to be, you know, put in, in the company of Patrick calls and uh, in conversation. Yeah. But, but it's an excellent observation because uh, the way I think of it is you have kind of like disagreeableness points that you can spend. Um, and I'm already spending some of my disagreeableness points by just disagreeing with people <laughs> by, you know, expressing skepticism or pushing back a little bit or, you know, pointing out nuance or something like that. Um, so I'm spending some of those points and I don't want to spend any points that I don't have to spend. So if I can, you know, find ways to, you know, be like friendly in my tone and just, you know, honestly sing- signal good faith. Like, so what are some honest signals of good faith? Well, like, you know, voluntarily pointing out exceptions to the points that I'm making 
or um, when when asking them about their view, like uh, about a point they've made that doesn't seem right to me or doesn't make sense. Um, sometimes I'll like try to volunteer like, well, you know, maybe you meant such and such. And, and you know, maybe I'm wrong about what they meant, but at least I'm showing that I'm like looking for reasonable or like charitable interpretations of what they said or like looking for ways to interpret what they're saying that makes sense to me. Um, so even if I'm wrong, I'm showing that I'm like trying to understand them instead of just looking for ways to rebut them. So, and yeah, you know, not overstating your case, like acknowledging when, you know, there's a point that's more speculative instead of something you're 100% sure about. I think all of that goes a really long way towards making people willing to listen to the content of your perhaps disagreeable <laughs> substance. Yeah. We've been talking about so- soldier mindset, partially in the capacity of, of entrepreneurship and, and working rela- uh, relationships. H- how do you see people uh, benefiting from applying scout mindset in their you know personal friendships or, or relationships or or common ways in which soldier mindset gets them uh, gets them tricked up? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many opportunities for uh, self deception and, <laughs> and rationalization and defensiveness in relationships. Um, well, I'll, I'll just give you one example that happened to me kind of recently. So I talk about this a bit in the chapter. Um, I call it coping with reality, and it's about sort of to the point I was making earlier about finding ways to like comfort or reassure yourself, um, basically ways to feel better in, you know, stressful situations without resorting to self-deception. And so one of those ways is to basically, before you try to figure out, is this upsetting possibility true? Before you try to think about that, first ask yourself, what would I do if it was true? Like, imagine it's true. How would you deal with that? How bad would it be? Oh, sorry. And the point being that, like, once you've figured out, like, okay, here's how I would, like, here's how I would tell my team if I realized I had made a mistake. Once you have that plan, then it's much easier to think clearly about, like, okay, is this actually the situation I'm in? The reason I bring this up is that I was, there's often, you know, a situation where you think you might be in the wrong but you don't really want to admit it to yourself. And so you like are hard at work trying to come up with rationalizations for why you're definitely not in the wrong. <laughs> and so in my case, I had, basically I was kind of worried I had done something like inconsiderate to a friend. So I, I was kind of arguing with myself um, about like, do I need to apologize? And so I would tell, I told myself alternately sometimes like, no, I, I don't, I didn't do anything wrong. Like I'm sure she didn't notice. And then other times I told myself, I'm sure she's forgotten already, which those were like internally contradictory justifications, uh-huh. which I'll set that aside. But <laughs> anyway, it was a sign that like, I clearly I wasn't fully convincing myself um, with these, these justifications. And so then I, I did this exercise that I was describing and I, I asked myself, okay, suppose I had to apologize. How would I do it? And I was able to pretty quickly like draft in my head. Okay, here's, like a basic apology I could give that I feel comfortable giving. Um, and I kind of imagined how she would react. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I think it would be so bad. Like, I bet she'd be appreciative. Yeah, I guess this isn't so bad. And so then once I had done that, I was able to return to the original question, should I apologize? And then the answer was very clear. Like, yes, I should apologize. <laughs> and so I think there are a lot of situations like that where just finding a way to make yourself open to considering the possibility that, you know, that you might be wrong or that you might you know, need to have a difficult conversation with someone or that you might need to break up or that, et cetera. Finding ways to make yourself open to seriously and honestly considering those possibilities can be really valuable. Yeah. 
I, I want to sort of close by by not just promoting the the scout mindset, but also some of your your your, your broader work. Just giving a preview. Oh, thanks. So it, it, you've been doing the, your your podcast, rationally speaking, for maybe, maybe a decade, maybe more. I mean, it over seems a decade like, now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Twenty ten is when it started. Good lord. How, how I'm do so you? Old. <laughs> how do you? Define, <laughs> and this was when podcasts were like fairly fairly. You were early adopting yeah. podcasts. How do you? Def- no, what, but what, now I'm like I, I'm like. Um, you know, the cities that first adopted subway systems like New York, and now they're just stuck with these like creaky old <laughs> grimy subway systems. Whereas these, these like new adopter countries like in Asia can build these gleaming new yeah. systems. So I'm still stuck like using all my old methods. <laughs> I really need to like update my podcasting methods. Totally. It's, 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 it's still quite good. I'm, I'm a fan. What determines the, 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 the speakers and the topics that you cover? Is it just pure curiosity? How do you sort of define your, your ah. show? That's such a great question. I don't I don't get to talk about that often enough. It's a delicate balance. Ideally, I guess I have like two kinds of guests to vastly oversimplify. Um, so one kind of guest is they're an expert in a topic that I'm really curious about. And so I want to ask them a bunch of questions about like, how does this thing work? How does, you know, willpower work? How does consciousness work, et cetera? And then another kind of guest is a guest with like a thesis. You know, their thesis is like Brian Kaplan came on the show and argued that that education was overrated and and basically like we should like cut education in half um and so some, sometimes there's a guest with a thesis and i'm very excited to you know uh argue with their thesis in a friendly way and the tricky part in choosing guests is choosing someone whose views are at least somewhat different from mine ideally because otherwise i could just talk to myself but who also is kind of willing to play the game i'm trying to play and by play the game i mean like they actually listen to my questions and, you know, try to honestly answer them instead of what many guests do, which is to kind of use my questions as like a, a pivot to talk, to share their talking points and not actually try to engage with my questions. And ideally they also, you know, they're, they're like happy to answer questions about evidence. Like, well, how do you, how do you know that the evidence supports your theory more than this alternate theory that it also seems consistent with. And so the best guests are the ones that hear those questions and they're all excited to talk about like, ah, yes. So, you know, here are the potential like ways my theory could be wrong. Here's what I think about them. And like, and they don't feel threatened (laughs) by those questions. So sometimes I, you know, misfire a bit, but, uh, but that's like what I'm going for in a guest. Yeah. That, That makes a lot of sense. And then also let's, let's end where we began just in terms of like Uh you talking about the, you, the, your, the work that you've done previous to this book and sort of the broader, you know, community or, or, or collection of communities that, that has comprised um, your, 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 your work. What would you say is the overlap between sort of uh, like the rationality community or some of the work that has mm-hmm. come out of, you know, adjacent communities and sort of, you know, Daniel Kahneman's sort of, you know, or, or, or more just like, or Dan Ariely's or more just like behavioral economics, more, 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 or, or or psychology more, more broadly, is, where, where does it overlap or, or where, where does it differ maybe? Oh, um, great question. So Daniel Kahneman and Dan Ariely, so they wrote um, Thinking Fast and Slow and Predictably Irrational, respectively, um, plus some other books. Their work is more about like cataloging the cognitive biases that humans are subject to. It's less about, you know, proposing solutions. Um, so that was kind of, I, I mean, I'm indebted to their work uh, and I'm not meaning to criticize it at all. I just, I was taking it kind of as a, as the jumping off point for, okay, you know, where do we go from here? Yeah. 
And what do you say to the like big or if, if your work has been trying to help people like think better and make better decisions, mm-hmm. what would you say to this like radically different straw man, which is like, who is the group that is trying to make people like feel better or be more in touch with their feelings or navigate their feelings and sort of like whatever that group is, what is the overlap between that group and, and, and your group? Oh, uh, well, I'm definitely in favor of getting people to feel better. And, and I, I think that that is often a side effect of scout mindset. Like I think often, at least if you're approaching it the right way, seeing things accurately and, and like being honest with yourself um, about what you actually think that often does make you feel better. Um, but yeah, I, I guess a complaint that I often have about like self-help um, or things in that space that are aimed at making people feel better um, is that I just, I wish they like cared more about uh, truth. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to find like a more sophisticated or subtle way to say it. No, I just, I wish they cared more about truth um, because I think, you know, we don't have to choose between like feeling better and uh, and seeing things clearly, at least the vast majority of the time. Um, certainly like we that trade-off exists to a far less extent than people think it does. And so it just seems like such a shame to me to like sacrifice our judgment to sacrifice our ability to see clearly in exchange for some short-term happiness, especially when there are other solutions that don't require that sacrifice. Yeah. What do you say to the sort of like, again, to simplify radically, the sort of, you know, the mistake theory of the view of the world, which is, hey, um, if people just had the same information or, or, oh, you know, yeah. or knowledge, they would, you know, get along or we'd all sort of, you know, see that we have uh, to radically simplify versus like the conflict theory view of the world, which is, no, actually, there's like a limited amount of resources, limited amount of stat, or, or semi-limited amount of resource, semi-limited amount of status, right. or, or even if there is, you know, unlimited resources, there's semi-limited status, and so actually, the the like truth of it all is that we are in fundamental conflict over over that same status, and thus it's actually better to like uh, either not know the truth or pretend, like you know, find some other ways. Like it's the noble lie that basically we shouldn't. It's not that we need to all just get on the same page such that we, you know, can get along better. It's actually, how do we tell ourselves stories that help us get through the day and help us get through working well with each other, even when yeah. the truth is that sometimes it might not be in our best interest or something. Yeah. So the, that dichotomy of like worldviews that you're talking about, mistake theory and conflict theory uh, was, I think, proposed by Scott Alexander yeah. um, on the now defunct blog, Slate Star Codex. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I loved it. It, it, uh, like clarified something that I'd only been half aware of and also changed my thinking to some degree. Um, I think it's great. Uh, its relationship to scout and soldier mindset is kind of complicated and I'd have to think more about it, but you could, I think you could at least in theory be like strongly conflict theory, um, but still in scout mindset, you could just be like trying to be like really clear eyed about how to defeat the enemy, <laughs> like yeah. the other side. But, but like my broader reaction to the mistaken conflict theory uh, dichotomy is just Clearly, both are true to some extent. Like, clearly, it is partly true that, like, a lot of the time, people are who seem to be your enemies are actually, you know, well intentioned. They just have like a very different picture of the world than you do, and one of you or both of you are wrong to some extent. Yeah. And so, like, there is a role for, um, like, it, it is really important and valuable to, like, try to reason with each other and try to, you know, change minds through like truth-oriented processes instead of through like what I sometimes call the dark arts, um, yeah. like through 
like deception or manipulation or kind of like sh- like sketchy persuasion um, or just like through active violence. <laughs> um, so so like clearly th- to some extent myth- mistake theory is correct, but it is limited. Like there are limited resources in the world and people, you know, have, as you you put it really well, actually, I don't need to like restate what you just said, but yeah, like competition for status uh, and resources are absolutely a real thing. I guess just in general, I would say it seems like the human tendency is to err too much towards assuming conflict and that like if someone seems to like have different goals from you, then they're probably like evil and, you know, stubborn and can't be reasoned with and should instead be fought. Um, And that, I mean, not to like pretend to be an evolutionary psychologist or anything, but that kind of makes sense to me why we would have evolved to like have that default um, since we grew up in tribes uh, who had to defend themselves from outsiders. But so, yeah, so even though there's some truth to both, I would guess that we by default err too much towards the side of conflict theory. And so I think if I were going to try to push in one direction, I'd try to push towards mistake theory and push people towards thinking like, are you like, are you sure the person who seems like a completely evil monster really is? Or do you think maybe you're like misunderstanding their beliefs or maybe they're just confused or, you know, are you sure there's no role for like reasoned conversation? (laughs) Yeah, I I, I agree with that. Uh, Maybe gearing towards, towards wrapping here. You know, we were just discussing Scott Alexander. He had this great yeah. blog post. We're just wrapping up sort of like the last decade of his thinking. <laughs> and, and it was this great summary. And I'm curious if the sort of, you know, if if you, him, uh, some of the other sort of like central figures of sort of the broader, you know, decentralized movement were to do that same sort of reflection, but for like the broader space, h- how you think the the ethos of the space or something about the space has evolved um, between 2010 and 2020, like if someone was, you know, hmm. deep and less wrong in 2010 or, or whatever was going on then, and like went in a coma and came back in 2020, you know, <laughs> obviously the world has changed, but of course, you know, the movement has evolved, you know, in, in, in some way too. What do you think would be sort of like the biggest difference or, or most surprising? And, and I segue that to also ask you like in the next, like, like, where do you expect the movement to go? Like in the next, like, few years, how might you expect it to evolve based on how it's evolved uh, in the past 10? Wow, that's such a great question. It's not one that I have like a really clear, um, you know, pre-made answer to. I guess just thinking out loud, I mean, one big difference is that the effective altruist movement, um, you know, that hypothetical less wronger who went to sleep in 2010 and woke up in 2020, (laughs) um, they would be, uh, you know, surprised by the existence of the effective altruist movement, which I wouldn't say it grew out of the rationalist movement because um, it kind of had its own origins. But the the ethos is is very similar. And there's you know a lot of social overlap um, where the ethos of effective altruism is um, trying to find ways to do the most good possible using like logic and reason and evidence. And so it's basically, you know, trying to apply rationality to the specific goal of doing as much good as possible. So so that's a big big change. Um, and I sometimes will identify as, like if I'm trying to introduce myself to the outside world, I'll sometimes identify as an effective altruist rather than a rationalist. Just, I mean, if I have to identify as anything, yes. <laughs> um, just because it's like a little easier to explain. So that's one thing I think the our hypothetical Rip Van less wronger would uh, be surprised at how mainstream the issue of AI risk and AI safety is. Yeah. <laughs> like, I still kind of boggle at it. Like in 2010, there was just this small group of of like rationalists, mainly in the 
Bay Area, I guess, and to some extent Oxford, um, who were talking about like, oh, as artificial intelligence gets more advanced, um, seems like there's like the real risk that uh, goals of the artificial intelligence won't be perfectly aligned with what's good for humans. Hmm, I wonder if we should think about this some more. <laughs> and that was just like this kind of weird, like fringe topic to pay attention to that no one else was really taking seriously. And now it's, I mean, a very mainstream thing that people in the government are worried about. And, uh, you know, top AI researchers who've written AI textbooks like Stuart Russell are worried about. And so that <laughs> that's a huge change. Um in terms of like the general movement, there hasn't really been an attempt to like grow, like scale up and, you know, grow the rationalist movement to be worldwide. I think partly because rationalist types just tend to not be super interested in that. Yeah. Um, you know, they'd rather stay kind of small and weird um, and not big and normal. So, yeah, so that that maybe hasn't changed as much as you would have thought it would. And then uh, you said going forward. I think, I mean, Scott Alexander has definitely created a, a huge community uh, around himself. He's kind of like part of the less wrong diaspora. And his, I feel like his ethos is still like, still like pretty close to the center of, of the spirit of less wrong, the principles of, you know, epistemic humility and probabilistic thinking and being analytical and, you know, being really interested in, in figuring out the evidence on complicated topics. So that's, that's still like pretty less wrong, but I guess he's, uh, there, there used to be kind of like a rule, I forget if it was official or unofficial on Less Wrong, to not talk about politics, um, just because it was it's so hard to have like a reasonable and civil conversation about politics. So that people were just like, let's just not deal with that. <laughs> um, and Scott has clearly um, set that rule aside. <laughs> so I think that's, um, and on balance, I'm glad he did. Um, and I think it's it's nice that he's playing, playing on hard mode on, on a very important topic. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh... Totally. I, I think that's a good place to wrap. Julia, can you, uh, for, for people who are uh, interested in learning more, um, and I highly recommend they, they do, where can they, uh, where and when can they, can they get uh, Scout Mindset? Yeah, so the Scout Mindset is coming out April 13th, um, but you can pre-order it now, and, uh, and pre-orders are, are lovely for authors. So if you think you might be interested in buying it, um, buying it sometime in the next couple of weeks would be awesome. Um, so, you know, there's an Amazon page and, uh, and a Penguin Random House page for the Scout Mindset. Um, you can just Google it. And then uh, my website is juliagaliff.com. Um, and there's a book page on there as well. And also links to like my YouTube channel and my podcast, Rationally Speaking. Um, or you can just go to rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. I, uh, I oh, or, and uh, uh, follow me on Twitter, Julia Galef. Yes. I, I, yes. I recommend uh, buying the book, uh, checking out the podcast and uh, Julia, is, is it, you're back on Twitter. Uh, I'm back. Yes. I was gone for a while um, in part to finish writing the book, which was <laughs> taking me a long time, um, but I'm back now and uh, jumping into the fray. The library <laughs> inside of a civil war as a, as, as <laughs> I never a, heard that. I love it. That's Bology's term, of course, for oh, Bology. Great. it is a civil war. <laughs> it's more of a civil war than for others. But uh, Juliet, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been it's been oh, great. Oh, my pleasure. This is so fun. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.